Welcome everyone to another episode of Dardashri, the podcast where we talk to amazing, inspiring Palestinians about their lives and the work that they do. Today, I'm joined by uh, with Iyad al-Baghdadi, who is the president of the Khawakbi Foundation and activist and the author of the Middle East uh, Crisis Factory. Uh, I know you're currently in, in Oslo, in Norway, um, and not, not in your home. Uh, I wanted to ask you, how come? Yeah, it's a big question, especially when you when you mentioned the 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 word home. Yeah. Uh, because I am a I am a Palestinian exile. My family come from Yaffa originally, from Manshiya. Um, both sides of my family, my father and my and my mother. My mother, uh, my mother's family is Samhuri. Um, and uh, you know, we my father was born in Yaffa, but uh, the the family after the Nakba became diasporized. Uh, very typical Palestinian story. My father grew up in Egypt. Uh, my mother grew up between uh, Syria and Kuwait. Uh, but I myself, uh, you know, was born and raised in the in the Gulf, uh, mostly in the United Arab Emirates. I spent 37 years, the first 37 years of my life over there. Um, I I had no experience living outside of the Arab region until 2014. Uh, I became an activist in 2011 with the start of the Arab Spring uprisings. And uh, whether a good thing or a bad thing, but I became prominent and well-connected very quickly, uh, mainly because I decided that my niche should be uh, bridging the, the knowledge gap by translating what's happening from Arabic to English. Mm. Uh, and that, uh, you know, tweeting in English is also interesting because it was also a form of self-censorship because I knew that if I spoke only in Arabic, I would be a lot more vulnerable and uh, the authorities in the country in which I lived, which was the United Arab Emirates, would not tolerate me uh, uh, as much. Uh, they're always fearful or at least they're always impatient with people who have a big uh, footprint in the Arabic language. So it was a form of self-censorship, but it ended up also being a form of protection because in 2014, I was arrested. Mm. Uh, there's a big story and a background to this, uh, which, uh, you know, I'll spare you all of the, the, the details. But um, I found myself in a cell, in a jail cell, uh, with the people who do not have, you know, because they had, they had issued orders for me to be expelled from the country. Um, and uh, they call it deportation, and they have to send you back to home, quote-unquote. Mm. Uh, and that was the questions, like, are you going to liberate Palestine so you can send me back there? Uh, so it, it ends up, I end up in this cell where with all of the people who have nowhere to be sent back to. And at the time, it was mostly Syrians and Palestinians. Um, so I'm basically sitting in a cell with Palestinians, uh, uh, you know, with Lebanese travel documents, with Egyptian travel documents, um, with you know, with the Jordanian background, with Iraqi background, etc. You know, we we're, we are after all a diasporized people. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, long story short, I um, I managed to um, you know after after leaving prison, uh, of course, it was not secure in prison because I had an Egyptian travel document, and there was a big fear that they will send me to Egypt where I would be disappeared. Uh, thankfully, I was actually sent to, you know, through certain interventions to Malaysia, where I lived in the airport for about a month, uh, you know, uh, because I had literally nowhere to go. 
But eventually, I, through certain connections and through certain invitations, I managed to be invited to speak at a human rights conference in Oslo in uh, 2014. And that was my opportunity to uh, apply for asylum. Um, and here I am. I live in Norway now. It's not the worst country to, to live in. Um, I went from the country, a country like the United Arab Emirates, which was, again, an oil-rich, a, rich, a country which is rich in fossil fuels and natural resources, to another which is also rich in yeah. oil. And uh, But the difference, of course, is that Norway tops the chart when it comes to democracy and free speech, while the UAE is at the bottom of the chart everywhere. So I, I think that maybe certain people in the UAE right now are thinking maybe we should have killed him in prison rather than allowed him to, uh, to, uh, to be free. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I know you didn't want to you know, go into the details, but briefly, what was the justification for, for, from them for your arrest? Oh, there was no justification. They don't need one. Okay. Uh, I, I was basically, it was literally in Arabic, awamar samia, higher orders. Uh, and they was, there, was no, there was no trial. There was no, there's nothing of that. It was simply, you know, we decided you have to leave. That's it. Of course, the background, I mean, I don't want to get into the juicy details of the background right now because uh, it might, uh, first of all, it might be long and long-winded and requires a little bit of context, but also it might, uh, I don't want to jeopardize the, the safety of people who might still be inside. Sure. Uh, but uh, essentially, it was, of course, related to my, uh, to my political act- activism. Yeah. And I think what grabbed my attention is that you... You began your activism in 2011, I'm assuming around the Arab Spring. What led you to that? What sparked something in you that maybe awoken something in you? Um, And where is that today in terms of kind of its journey and trajectory uh, internally? So, I mean, every Palestinian has an activist inside them. I actually recently been having conversation with my my own uh, team um, and most of my team, I mean, a lot of my team, you'll see them on Twitter, but some of them we don't really speak publicly because of the situation, security situation around us. But one of them said this. He said, you know, we're, if we're, we go around looking for activists in the Arab region or the MENA region generally, there is always an advantage because every Palestinian is a potential activist. Uh, we, you know, we, uh, uh, because we are so affected and impacted by everything that happens in the political realm, uh, Speaking about politics and speaking about activism and speaking, this is something that happens all the time in our families. Uh, and I, I don't think there's many Palestinian families who don't have a history of activism somewhere in, you know, if not the immediate family, then the extended family. Uh, and this is a fact. I think we have been fighting longer than any other Arab, Arab people. I mean, uh, we're going on four, four generations now. And we will be going for another, for another few generations uh, until we liberate Palestine and, and come back home. Um, but essentially, um, I can't really put a date on when I started my activism, but I was not, I, I was not active in a sense that I was not out there on, on Twitter or social media saying that these are my political opinions, etc. Um, what really prompted me was the, the courage of everybody who took to the streets at the same time. To be honest, before the Arab Spring, I thought that this moment is not going to come anytime soon. Uh, I knew that, you know, this entire regional order is lacking in legitimacy and it will break sooner or later. It was very obvious that this is not, this is not sustainable. Th- there was this constant feeling that this is not sustainable. But I 
myself, I was 33 at the time. And I thought, I think 32, uh, and I thought that maybe in 20 years, we will see something like this, maybe even longer. Um, and at the same time, I thought, you know, like maybe the main work that we need to do until then is intellectual work. Mm. Uh, we need to lay a foundation, et cetera, for. But then things happened fast and you had to embrace that this is, this is happening. So I started tweeting on the 25th of January, 2011, the, the same day as the Egyptian uprising. Um, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, and and you reflect a lot, and I'm sure you do, I do uh, as well, on, on kind of, you know, it's been, what, 10 years now, almost, since that yeah. time? When, yeah. What are your feelings about kind of that trajectory and where a lot of the region stands today? Well, whenever I meet with uh, with my friends who are activists from 2011, uh, it's clear because there are, there are people who try to call into question whether 2011 was a point of uh, start of starting anything. Uh, and it's true that there is a history before it. There are many people who have been active for much longer, especially in the Palestinian context, of course. But it's also very clear whenever we, we speak, even when we are trying to call into question the importance of 2011, 2011 is always mentioned. It is still a reference point for a lot of people. And it's also the point of at which many of us met each other. Mm -hmm. uh, we were living in silos. Like basically it was like uh, the, the Islamists only spoke to the Islamists. The Salafis only spoke to the Salafis. The leftists only spoke to the leftists. The liberals had their own circles. And then everybody poured onto the same streets and to the same, into the same squares. Uh, and also the virtual square, which is, you know, the, the online public sphere. That was the moment where we really got to know each other and got to know that, yeah, you know, other people who have different perspectives and different grievances and different uh, stories that exist. And some people loved it and some people didn't like it. I mean, there are people who didn't like the fact that, hey, there's so many people not like us. But there are also people who really like the fact that, hey, there's so many people who are, you know, who who are living side by side and we don't know about them and we should be, you know, we should be talking. Um, I'm... I put myself squarely in the in the among the people who like the fact that there is so much diversity and there's so many people to get to know. Uh, and I feel that there has been a thinning of ideology since then, because uh, before that, people kind of like they wanted to hang around with people who followed their ideology. There was like a tribalism around ideology. I think that has really broken broken down increasingly. Mm. I think after the Trump years, especially, I feel like we live in a post-ideology kind of world where we're really organizing around values rather than around ideology. I don't think like even if you, you ask me what's your ideology, I don't even know what my ideology is anymore. Uh, but I'm much clearer. I'm, I'm clearer than ever when it comes to my values and who I want to associate with. Um, but then you ask, you know, you're asking about the trajectory. And obviously, there has been an intellectual transition or intellectual evolution that I myself has, have gone through and many others have gone through. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel like I could read tweets of mine that I wrote like five years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago. I'm like, I want to punch this guy. <laughs> uh, but there are others where I think, okay, I get him. I get, I get where he was or what, what, what was, you know, in the end, I'm, I'm also a creature of my own surroundings. Uh, and I did grow up in a very specific country, in a specific family, in a specific time with specific influences. Um, but I, I mean, when it comes to the trajectory of the Arab Spring itself, I mean, this is a point that I make in the book, uh, which is that 
Uh, first of all, I don't shy away from using the word Arab Spring, and I have my own reasons for that. There, there are people who don't like to use it. Uh, but I don't speak about it as a 2011 event. I speak about it as a as an era of, of our history that started in 2011 and that lasts for 30 years. So we're speaking about something between 2011 and 2041. We are 10 years into it. Uh, we're not 10 years after it, but we're 10 years into it. And we still have 20 years to go. Interesting. I want to I wanna talk about that intellectual evolution that you talk about. I, I know you, you, you seem to be anchoring yourself in values rather than ideology but is there an intellectual tradition that you are uh, gravitating towards and maybe where was that starting point and where is it where are you now well i mean i i grew up in a very palestinian family uh, i remember points of like i remember like when when you when you ask me like how how long back do you remember your own uh, like what's the, what's the earliest memory you have, for example? And I, I mean, I would tell you, for example, the Sadat assassination. Mm. The the you know I was three years old or two years old. The uh, the Camp David Accords around the same you know around around the same time. The invasion of Lebanon, 1982. The first Intifada. I was 10 years old, 1987. Uh, the Oslo Accords, for example, 1993. I had a fight with my father. Um, you know, you know, things like that. It's it's basically our history. So it's it's the, it's not it's not it's not impersonal for us. It's not it's basically something which is related to your family, related to your you know your relationship with your with your um, you know with 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 your family, with your extended family, etc. Uh, but you know, later on in in my life um, after the Iraq War, uh, specifically after the the, the quote-unquote war on terror, I started to gravitate more towards uh, uh, Salafi jihadism and Islamism generally. I did uh, go through a radicalization experience for a period of like three or four years. This was like 20, like, yeah, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, 20 years ago. Um, and of course, uh, I had, you know, my, my earlier education, I received a Western education, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I did uh, O-levels, uh, GCE, basically British medium. And then when I went to college, it was an American college. Um, so I had that background, you know, but, but at the same time, I had this gravitation towards Islamic topics, uh, uh, drifted more and more towards the Salafi end of the spectrum. Um, and if anybody actually went in and came out, he'd tell you that people who leave, they leave with an intense uh, anger. They, 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 they leave thinking, oh, I want to destroy this thing that took away my soul. Mm. Um, and I don't, want to, I don't want to make it about Salafism per se, uh, because I don't, want to, I don't want to be unfair to Salafis who are just regular people. But I'm talking specifically about radicalized narratives within the jihadi Salafi uh, spectrum. Um, but later on, when I drifted out of it, um, I actually became enamored with... Western ideologies that were non-interventionist. Uh, I thought that, okay, here's a current of Western thought, which I can kind of see that we have some kind of uh, intersection, mainly because they're also against wars, they're also against intervention, they're also against, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, these things that we're, you know, that hurt us so much. And uh, for a while, I, you know, I, I was reading a lot of libertarian literature whether it's right libertarian or left libertarian. 
um, and I, of course, uh, you know, libertarian generally who are who are really well informed in that tradition, they know that there is such a thing as left libertarianism, and they're embarrassed by American libertarians, uh, who kind of like gave the whole word uh, a really bad, you know, basically uh, they, they they ruined it for everybody else essentially. Um, but, you know, since then, I mean, since basically leaving that behind and embracing basically the Arab Spring and the, the rich intellectual tradition that comes with that, because you're, you're meeting everybody, you're meeting, you know, people who, who uh, you know, who read Gramsci, Gramsci and people who read, uh, you, know, uh, uh, from, you know, from the left to the right, people who read Hayek and, uh, and, my, and von Mises, etc., and also people who, who, who read, uh, you know, uh, uh, more traditional. This is why we eventually called our uh, our uh, our organization Al Kawakibi, because Al Kawakibi was a Syrian, uh, you know, Muslim intellectual who used uh, native narratives, including religious narratives, to speak against tyranny and to criticize the lack of, uh, you know, the the, the lack of. Uh, uh, a tradition, a native tradition, which has really strong teeth against tyranny. So I would say I'm very, you know, eclectic when it comes to that. Uh, something that you know my my libra library behind me kind of reflects, because you know you'll see, you know, many different titles from across the board. Um, but yeah, I'm not. I'm no longer slotting myself as uh, I, I really uh, cringe when people really, you know. Uh, um, try to define themselves in terms of ideology. I think you're a human being, you're wider than ideology. Mm. That's fascinating. And uh, I think it takes a lot of intellectual honesty to be able to reflect and, and kind of track that journey and someone who's introspective. And I think that brings me to kind of um, a theme that I, I mean, we met through Twitter and uh, one of the things that really caught my eye in terms of what you, what you uh, talk about is, is trauma. And, and kind of that journey. Uh, it's a journey I personally have been going on over the last year now and uh, still early days, but something that, that I feel very strongly about. Uh, what, what led you there and, and how, how is it going? Well, I, I do believe that we're all traumatized and that our region is full of trauma. Not only our generation, but we inherit trauma. It's intergenerational trauma. And I do believe that uh, a lot of ex a lot of behavior that we're kind of used to in our communities and we interpret it as culture is actually trauma. Um, even family, you know, families, you know, certain families act a certain way, etc. It's also intergenerational trauma and things that have not been, you know, have not been said. Uh, that said, you know, when you when you when you have a broken bone, and you can see very clearly that you have a broken bone. Uh, you are forced to address it. You're forced, basically, it pains, it hurts, you can't really, like, basically, it demands to be taken care of immediately. Uh, this is unlike having uh, a silent illness, you know, diabetes, for example. You could go for years without even knowing that you have a problem. And then by the time you discover that there's a problem, it's already too late or it's already become something really bad. Uh, I say the same when it comes to trauma because we're all traumatized, but not all of us realize that we're traumatized. Mm -hmm. And in a certain way, uh, me uh, going through a traumatic experience with prison, uh, living in an airport, living in a refugee camp, uh, my family, you know, being hurt really badly after that, uh, trying to come to terms with that, a lot of my friends and, you know, being killed, 
Um, all of that gave me severe PTSD uh, around 2017, uh, which was bad enough that uh, that I was suicidal. Mm. Um, the the fact that th this is this is basically the analog of having a broken bone, where you have to stop, you have to slow down, you have to address it. Um, I don't believe that I'm more traumatized than others. I do believe I do believe that others are as traumatized, maybe even more traumatized than me. But something happened in my life to force me to to address it, um, and that's when I took some time out. I had to. Uh, I mean, I'm very thankful that I live in Norway, where I remember, you know, uh, I got I I was approved for CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for PTSD. And I remember going and seeing my therapist, who was a fantastic, you know, therapist. And then going back home and getting a pizza on the way. And I'm like, where in which other country is like 60 minutes of therapy cheaper than a pizza? <laughs> <laughs> like, or maybe it's the reverse and the pizza is because, you know, everything's expensive here. Okay, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, it's, it is a point that it's uh, right now one of the main problems with, uh, with, uh, with talking about trauma is that the current modalities are expensive mm. and they're not, they're not available for people who don't have the means. But uh, I was I was lucky that it was basically you know uh, you know we have health insurance over here it covers it covers these things so it's, it wasn't that expensive. But really everything changed after that in 2018, when I discovered other modalities, uh, specifically psychedelic assisted therapies, which were experimental. They're still experimental, of course, and uh, you know I think it, it'll take a couple of years, maybe more, before they are legalized or licensed at least. Uh, but they're highly effective. And uh, the reason why they're highly effective, I think it, this is worth its own study, its own its own uh, conversation. But the reason why they're the, like the reason why they're exciting is because they get behind one of the most like two of the most important problems with talk therapy right now. Uh, one of them is cost because you don't like you, it, it's 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 assisted therapy, which means that you become your own therapist. It's self therapy. Uh, it allows you to meet a much wiser version of yourself. Um, but also it is, uh, you know, th there's always the idea, this is something that was difficult for me when I was recovering. The person you're sitting with, the therapist, as uh, as caring as they can be and as uh, as intelligent and as, uh, as warm and as uh, well-educated as they can be, they don't come from your cultural background and they don't come, they, they're not, you know, they read about her experiences maybe, but they don't really you know, feel it. Mm -hmm. And this was always a barrier, especially for people of immigrant background in a country which is, which is mostly privileged. Um, this gets behind it. This gets basically behind this whole problem. It gets around this, the whole problem because uh, you're your own therapist in the end. You're the one who decides what is the norm. Um, and so, uh, I do believe that this is, if we can, like, I think a lot can be worked, a lot can be said about this mainly because I do believe that trauma is another dimension of history that's not talked about. Mm -hmm. If we actually go back, I think I, I remember listening to a podcast once which talks about the history of PTSD in, in you know, pre-modernity. Um, you know, that people even, even you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, they would get PTSD too, but they would never know how to diagnose it. But People did live with the, with the effects for the rest of their lives. Uh, of course, there's a whole conversation about whether we should call it PTSD because we are we're living 
especially people like me, we, we get re-traumatized all the time. Mm-hmm. Trauma is a continuous part of our lives, which is why therapy has to be a continuous part of our lives. Uh, but I do believe that if we want to talk about the, his, the the future of the region, we have to talk about trauma and trauma recovery. I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, with at least within Palestinian society, it's it's and within our my own community here, it's extremely difficult to normalize a conversation around this and make it uh, accessible. I mean, forget even getting to a point where it's financially affordable. But it's I think it's there is still a taboo over therapy and uh, and uh, yeah. And to be honest, the the taboo is, I mean, my father is a cardiologist. Mm. Uh, he's retired now. And he, you know, he had a very severe breakdown after my arrest. Uh, he still hasn't rego- recovered. But, you know, he's someone who's, he's a cardiologist himself. And he's the one who used to tell us when we were kids that, you, like, we should not have a stigma around mental health. But when it came to him, he had the same stigma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even he's like, he was resisting. He's like, no, I'm not crazy, I'm etc. So it goes deep. It runs deep. And I think that we should, we should appreciate that and we should lead by example. Exactly. So one of the main things that, I mean, one of the main things that I decided to do early is to be very open about this. Most people, they don't speak about it. And because not not many people speak about it, they think that, hey, I'm alone. I'm the only one who's who's, who's going through this because nobody's talking about it. But the moment I started talking about it, I realized that, no, everybody has, has the same problem. It's just that many people don't want to talk about it. And the moment I started talking about it, they started reaching out. Yeah. I agree. And I, I feel the same way. I think uh, it's something with, uh, for those with a platform that feel very strongly about it, especially with an audience that is based in our part of the world. I think it's very important to, to keep pushing and normalizing. I'm, in my experience, uh, my, my, my journey with therapy kind of opened up also my approach to my strategic thinking. I don't know if it was the same for you. Um, but it, it was it was a very interesting parallel of a journey. And uh, one thing I, I also see you uh, talk a lot about is strategic thinking in general, and and specifically in relation to also the Palestinian cause. So I, I just wanted to ask you about your influences and and what has formulated, of what, what framework of 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 strategy has formulated in your mind over the years. Um, and has that had any connection to kind of this growth and evolution journey you, you've been on? Well, uh, in, in 2011, of course, it was a lot of activists from different Arab countries. Uh, out of 22 Arab countries, 20 had some kind of uprising. Uh, and I was living in one of the two that didn't, of course. Um, so we're facing people who... So, I mean, I'm just setting the stage. You're Palestinian, and Egyptians had an 18-day uprising, and they think that they won. And I'm like, we have been fighting for 70 years. This is not the end. I guarantee you this is not the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're starting, you're, you're trying to make people understand that, no, this is long-term. You need to know that you need to be pushing for a generation. It's not some like, like, do you think that they're just going to let you be? Do you think that the powers that you pushed are just going to just sit and take it? Uh, So I think part of strategic thinking really is the fact that we come from a cause that has been uh, active and suffering really for really, I mean, I'm not, this hasn't started with the Nakba, of course, basically. This is a hundred years now, or more than a hundred years. 
so that's part of it. But then again, uh, I think part of my own uh, education, I, I, I was a st- before I became an activist, I was a startup consultant. My job was to strategize. Uh, my job was basically to, you know, to stra- of course strategize for uh, for startups, etc. Um, but I think I think you're right that the trauma recovery is related because uh, part of what you get when you recover from for trauma is that you rediscover your own patience and your own wisdom, and you start to understand exactly how you became this person that you are and how something that happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe even 40 years ago, impacts who you are today. And that gives you a long-term view because you're like, okay, um, uh, if I want to win, I have to set my sight 20 years into the future. Mm-hmm. I cannot set my sight five years or two years into the future. Um, I feel like one of the main problems with the movement in general, I'm not talking only within Palestine, but in, in the wider uh, region, is that instead of working on a single 20-year plan, we are working on subsequent, like continuous one-year plans. And so we continue to fight the same battle over and over and over again, instead of really setting our sight be- beyond that and working diligently on the long-term. Um, but yeah, I am essentially, I have positioned myself right from the start, uh, increasingly uh, in the last three years or so. Uh, and this is basically the, the position that uh, our organization, Kawakibi Center also takes, which is that we are strategists and we develop strategies and we try to lead by example. Um, and of course, a lot of this is really being being surfaced over the next two years. And I want to talk about Palestine specifically. I think we're in a moment where there's a, a transition from a paradigm that has failed over the last 30 years, the Oslo paradigm, and one that is still unknown and to be defined. And, and so what do you think I'm sure you've given this thought, but it's a big question. What do you think our national strategy should be moving forward? Well, um, uh, interestingly, it is, I mean, I don't know how much I should say. Um, say what you can. But I mean, yeah, because because keep in mind that it, there are certain things that are becoming increasingly clear now. Mm. Uh, you might, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have introduced this so far, but I am living under protection in mm-hmm. Oslo because, uh, because uh, you know, um, agents of the Saudi regime uh, have, have wanted me dead since 2018. Um, and uh, the threats continue. And uh, what, when we look beyond this, we, look, we, we find out that the Saudis are not lone actors and they coordinate with others in the region. And it's up to you how to fill in the blanks. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, the, the it's very clear that the structure of tyranny in the region has shifted, uh, or at least has been more exposed. I think it has always, be, or always been the case, but it's been more increasingly more exposed. In 2011, we thought that uh, we are facing, or at least a lot of, I don't want to say we, but re- rather a lot of people on the streets, they went down saying the, the people want, demand the downfall of the regimes. And by the regimes, they meant Mubarak, Qaddafi, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, Assad, uh, you know, Bin Ali, etc., the people who were their immediate tyrants, who, as you know, might have, you know, practically all of them continuously spoke about the Palestinian cause without doing anything for it. Um, 
essentially, this was 2011, but by 2013, 2014, around the time I was uh, arrested, it was clear for us at the time that the main actors, the main inter people who were intervening and forming a counter-revolutionary wall were certain Gulf states, specifically the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. So, um, you know, I, I come from this unique situation of being a Palestinian from the UAE uh, who's an Arab Spring activist. Um, uh, now, uh, increasingly, it's being clear also that the UAE and Saudi Arabia are not lone actors and their connection, their direct strategic and intelligence connections to uh, the Israelis is becoming more transparent. Uh, we have seen, for example, who provides them with the hacking technology, who provides them with diplomatic support. Uh, and uh, this is only the tip of the iceberg. And the iceberg is really go goes, goes deep into that. In, into you know behind you know what what is unseen is far more than what is seen when it comes to this, and this of course my work uh, is exposing this and uh, and this is the reason why I live under protection. Um, but if we want to pivot to what our national strategy should be, I would say five main long-term goals. And keep in mind, I'm talking twenty years. Mm -hmm. um, we have to. Um, I think the main important, most important thing is that we have to unite and re-legitimize our polity. Uh, unite and re-legitimize Palestinians. Uh, and this is this continues to be the heaviest lift, and this continues to be the, the thing which is the most sensitive uh, for our adversaries. Uh, and it is the one thing I think they will do the most to disrupt. Especially that Doing this requires us to speak to to oppose the the current status quo, including the current actors, which means that if we try to do this, it's not going to be the Israelis only who will be trying to disrupt this, or uh, you know their their allies in the Arab world. It will also be among the Palestinians themselves, within you know you know wh whoever is the current uh, the current the current uh, actors in the Palestinian space who really. Have have done as much as they can, and they cannot do more. And they have become a liability rather than a uh, uh, you know they've become actively a part part of the problem. Mm. Um, on the other hand, of course, uh, it's clear that uh, our adversaries have divided us. They have psychologically and physically isolated us from each other. Uh, they have deepened our existing div divisions. They have kept us divided, and they disrupted all attempts to reverse this. Uh, so it makes it very clear that this is the top priority for us. And I think that uh, if we have, want to adopt 20-year thinking, then we should not try to skip over the details. We should not try to, you know, uh, we shouldn't try to plant a seed and expect the seed to grow immediately. Uh, we aren't playing a computer game. This is, this is real life, you know. So which means that it doesn't start from us going together and saying, hey, let's create this new initiative for political front, even though that's useful. But essentially, we the main lift is to get to know each other. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, simply getting to know each other. We are a very diverse people because we are forced to live in so many different situations. We might not see eye to eye on a lot of things. Uh, someone who lived in Haifa, versus someone who lived in Gaza, some, versus someone who lives in Ramallah, versus someone who lives in Yarmouk in, in Damascus, versus someone who lived in the Gulf, will have very different lived experiences and very different aspirations and understanding of what it means to be Palestinian and what it means to be to liberate Palestine even. Uh, so I think it starts with really just talking to each other. 
Um, so I said five things and I only mentioned one, but, uh, but I think this is the heaviest lift. Yeah, I agree. I, I think Palestinian fragmentation and segregation is critical. I'm thinking also a lot, you know, a lot of conversations around rebuilding a political system that offers space for Palestinians to come and have political representation as part of ending that fragmentation, uh, you know, after yeah, the I, th I think this is a subsequent, this is a subsequent point. I think the main thing that happened, that has to happen first is reestablishing, you know, we are one body, but but who, whose, whose parts have been severed from each other. And I think we just need those parts of the body to reacquaint themselves with each other. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Maybe we need two or three years of that, maybe even five years of that before we come together and say, hey, let's build something together. Yeah, yeah, I think for me, I, I think I think about it slightly differently. Um, I think there, there isn't that space where we can, can, can have these conversations. A lot of Palestinians can't visit each other in different spaces. A lot of Palestinians can't go to the UAE and obviously Palestinians in the UAE can't come here or maybe now they can't. But, um, but, but fragmentation, I think predominantly is, is a wedge is a driven through geography and, and the lack of ability to move. And I think that can be addressed virtually and in other ways, but we're stalling a process also of self-reflection about where we are and where we want to go. And so, yes, I agree that the first step towards ending fragmentation and, and developing this unity is getting to know each other. But I think also we can't leave it, leave it to the monopolies of power we have in the West Bank and in Gaza and in 48 to drive this to a place that is completely counterproductive. I think in parallel to that process of getting to know each other, there needs to be this the system of, of representation uh, for, for political conversations and decisions, a vehicle to move national liberation forward because- uh, Yeah, I think we have to define what it even means to be, to, to what, what national liberation even means. Yeah. Uh, because different people mean different things by it. And I think this is always, a, this has always been a, a, a sticking point. But I, I think that um, there are three important concepts, vision, leadership, and legitimacy. And I think these three are related. They're basically one and the same. And I think it does not start, it, they can only start with vision. In other words, whoever presents a vision will also uh, become or, or come into a position of leadership uh, and will establish some sort of legitimacy. So it starts with vision, first, first and foremost. And you cannot really, to, in order to give a vision, you, really, you, not, you not only need to give a plan, sorry, you not only have to give a dream that this is how we, ha we, have, to, this is how we have to be eventually, but you have to give a plan how to get there. Yeah. Um, and this is something which continues because the, the current actors, as you mentioned, are, are bankrupt. They're strategically uh, bankrupt. They have nothing to offer. Uh, I mean, even when I talk about, uh, you know, the current uh, paradigms of, of course, uh, it's, it's understandable that when people, when a people like ours go through an experience, basically, we're, we're fighting for survival, we're being erased. It's understandable, that, for example, that we will boost cultural, we'll try to document our culture. Uh, there are others, for example, who don't have a chance, like look at the, the Uyghur, for example, in, in China, where they're, you know, they have no chance to li to liberate themselves, but at least they can they can you know protect their culture. For example, similar thing is happening with the Armenians, for example, where again they're facing incredible odds and they feel you know they feel they're being erased. 
Um, so it's important to do all of that, but then we have to ask, is this, this is part of the strategy, this is not the entire strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've taken a lot of heat for talking about, for example, uh, the strategy of resistance from Gaza and asking really, just asking the question, if we continue to do this for 20 years, do we liberate Palestine? Uh, I mean, yeah, we, 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 need to, we need to strengthen and legitimize our, our backbone, our, even our military backbone. Uh, but what does this mean and within what context and within what, uh, what vision of the future? No, I agree with that. I think, you know, in my personal experience, the, the space to be able to formulate and propose a vision uh, is very limited. And so actually the most strategic thing is to create that space. Um, and so for, for Palestinians who live in Palestine, they've been sold so much bullshit over the last 50 years. It's also a crisis of legitimacy. Even if you come with the most strategically sound vision for the future, I think they'll laugh you off without a sense of legitimacy. And so you're right, they're all intertwined in many ways. Um, it's just how do you create that space to, to formulate a different... I, I think someone has to start the conversation first and foremost. And I think that the, the, the format, whenever you want to mention, you want, when you want to build a vision, uh, it can't be a tweet. It can't even be an article. It has to be something which is full enough, complete enough, so that you can explain the entire context of what you're trying to say, uh, so that people can understand that, you know, and they, they, in the end, they don't have to agree with it. That's the whole point. It has to be democratic. In a sense, if I want to speak to people, I'm like, listen, you, I don't mind if you hate me for saying this. I don't mind if you completely disagree with me. Just listen to me. That's all. Yeah, yeah, I know I hear you. And I think that for me is, is where I agree with you. I think a democratic space that allows that conversation and leads to political action is, is kind of where we, need, where we need to go. Anyways, um, I want to thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation here. It's a pleasure and finally to connect a face and a voice to the tweets. Um, I want to- thank you. Um, urge people to get uh, the Middle East uh, Crisis Factory. Uh, yeah, where can where can people find it? I mean, it's available. I don't know where it's available in Palestine, but right now it's available on uh, you know on online platforms, book book depository or Amazon, etc. I don't know if uh, uh, you know what what the ordering options are there for people in Palestine. No, no Amazon <laughs> Amazon is a nightmare to get, but do do get the book, everyone. And uh, yeah, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.